0: This evening in the book of Romans begins in uh, about verse 21 of chapter 14. Now I don't know whether I gave this outline or not, so here it is uh, over what we've studied and what we'll continue with this, this, uh, this, this evening consecration and the weaker brother. And that's in uh, that idea that concept is developed in the 14th chapter verse 1 through the 15th chapter in verse 13. Uh, and basically it presents three things. Do not judge another. That's 14 1 through 12. Do not tempt another. 14, 13 through 23. You love him enough that you don't put temptation before him. And you help others, and that's where we're going into here this evening. Chapter 15, 1 through 13. Outlines are a great tool as they uh, lay the scriptures bare in terms of their message or uh, what they're aimed at, what they're talking about. You know, I've seen it a lot of times. In Bible studies, the Scriptures are taught as though each verse didn't have any relation to the other verses. Uh, it's just, uh, according to some people's concept, it's just uh, holy words, <laughs> words from God, and that's all it is. And they, they study, Paul talks about, to Timothy about people who search and study the Scriptures. How's it stated it? and they come out knowing nothing. Uh, they're always in the business of studying the scriptures, but they... Ever learning, but never coming to a knowledge of is. the truth? There it is, that's it. They're ever learning, year after year after year, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Now that's not God's fault, don't blame God for that. He's made himself perfectly clear. If he made this knot appear on their shoulders, and he made yours too. He knows how to reason with you, doesn't he? And he desperately wants to reason with man because he's not willing that anyone should perish. And so consequently, the, the scriptures are not at fault because of your lack of understanding. Uh, these people that Paul was talking about were ever in the process of learning. That's what it looked like. But never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And God designed his word so that Even the simple can come to the knowledge of the truth. Remember Jesus in front of the Jews on one occasion? He lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed to his Father. He said, I thank thee, Father, that you haven't revealed yourself to the wise and to the prudent, but to the simple. And so it's understandable. Uh, It's explainable by the simple man. Alright, but there's a basic outline right there. And we're in the 15th chapter. And here's, you follow along because this is what we're going to look at. Uh, Verse 1 through 7 talks about how we're to imitate Jesus in our walk here below. And then right on down, verse 8 through 13 of chapter uh, 15, uh, he applies these seven things up here. Uh, to recognition or reception of the Gentiles. He's speaking to Jews, and he's showing them that they need to offer this same uh, recognition uh, in following Jesus uh, to the Gentiles. Boy, that was hard for them to take, I imagine, because they'd been taught all their life that a Gentile was a nobody, a nothing. He was an outcast. They weren't to eat with him. They weren't to even go in the house of a Gentile. That's what upset Peter in uh, Acts, the 10th chapter. You remember when uh, God sent uh, Cornelius uh, to have some of his servants go down to uh, Peter the tanner's house uh, and get Peter the apostle that was down there on the rooftop. And God had to show him uh, let down a sheet with unclean animals three times and and commanded Peter to eat. And Peter said, Oh, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean, as that uncleanness represented the Gentiles on this occasion because God was preparing Peter to go to the house of an uncircumcised Gentile, Cornelius and his household. And finally the Lord told Peter, Don't question anything. You just get up and go with those men down there and they'll take you to Cornelius' house. And you know the account. When Peter got there, he's a little uptight. He's speaking through Clint's teeth. You can't help but see it in the text. He says, why did you sin for me? I'm a Jew. Why you sin for me? You're a Gentile. You're unclean. And that was the moment... On that occasion when God showed his acceptance of the Gentiles. Cornelius and his household. And so Cornelius said, well, God told me to send for you. And I did and you come. It's good you come. Now tell us words whereby me and my house might be saved. And uh, you know the rest of the account. Uh, But the Gentile was unclean. And so here Paul, as he writes this epistle to the Romans, he, he throws this in there, that they're to do be like-minded. Uh, they're to apply these seven things here, uh, not only to a weaker brother, and in dealing with a weaker brother, but also the reception of the Gentiles. <laughs> Let's begin in verse 21. We looked at that last week, but it'll help us to get into our study. Uh, Here, he states a a privilege that I've got in verse 21. He says, it is good not to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor to do anything whereby thy brother stumbleth. That's a very honorable thing he said, very good thing. If you abstain from these things, it's right within themselves. But because of your love for a brother, you won't put a stumbling block before a weaker brother. All right, so so what's a good thing for me to do? I know what's lawful. Well, eat meat, uh, whatever. I want to do is okay, but that's a good thing for me to do, not to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. The good thing is to pursue a course of activity that doesn't cause the weaker brother to stumble. We look out for the weaker brother. Well, how can you tell a weaker brother? Now, I probably should have dealt with that question some, some earlier in this study. I didn't. So we'll talk about it tonight. Uh, That's a question that needs to be uh, answered. Uh, You can tell him a weaker brother because he questions things. He's not the fellow who says, boy, it's wrong to do that. There's a guy that's got his mind made up, doesn't he? That's not the weaker brother. That fellow is stronger than iron, uh, so to speak. Uh, do what you want to do. He's going to continue doing what he's doing, so he's all right, isn't he? The weaker brother is the one who said, I thought that that was wrong. I've been taught that I ought not to do that. Uh, is it all right? He's a fellow with questions. He's the weaker brother. Uh, What did he just identify himself in that way as? Well, the weaker brother. The weaker brother questions. He doesn't demand. He doesn't make statements. He questions. That's the weaker brother. You can identify him, can't you? Now, you can see that in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, sitting at meat in the idol's temple, and a fellow comes along and says, Wasn't this offered to idols? What did he just identify himself as? The weaker brother. As scriptures will tell you, the weaker brother is the questioning brother. He's not the fellow who makes decisions and then argues. He's just a questioner. And then, last of all, there's a closing reminder in verse 22 and 23 of this chapter. In verse 22, there's a closing uh, reminder to the stronger brother. The writer says, The faith which thou hast, have thou to thyself before God. Happy is he that judgeth not himself in that which he approves. And so, to the strong brother, he has faith to eat the meat offered to idols. He has faith to do this and that uh, that the weaker brother doesn't have. Uh, what's that stronger brother obligated here? What's his obligation? Have faith to yourself, that verse said. Have faith to yourself. In other words, don't make the weaker brother have it. Leave him alone. The weaker brother doesn't have to have your faith in these matters. If you think it's alright to eat meat offered to idols, and it is, because the stronger brother understands meat's for the belly and the belly's for meat. It doesn't matter. He's eating the meat. He's not offering it to idols, but he's eating it that have been offered to idols. We discussed that, I think, to links. Uh, So but if if he if this stronger brother has faith like this, have it to yourself. Don't, don't push it on, on a weaker brother. Leave him alone till he matures, till he comes to this knowledge. Then there's a word to the weaker brother in verse twenty three <clears throat> as it finishes out this chapter. Uh, he says, But he that doubteth is condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, that doesn't mean whatsoever is not found in the Word of God is wrong. That, that doesn't mean that at all. Now, that's the way that passage is normally used in the church. Instrumental music is not in the Word. Faith comes by hearing the Word, and therefore, Instrumental music is wrong because it's not of faith. Now, I don't believe that instrumental music is acceptable to God today or pleasing to God today, but I don't think that this is the argument for it. This argument says if my conscience won't allow me to do something, it's sinful for me to do it even if the thing is right, if my conscience condemns me. How does God direct you? Through your conscience. If your conscience condemns you in even something that you find out later is right to do, still in all you stand condemned before God because he expects you to fill your conscience with faith, the word of God, and to judge from that basis everything. And be like David. He prayed uh, on one occasion in the 51st Psalm, Uh, Lord deliver me from the sin of presumption presuming something is okay without checking it out everybody does that don't they they presume things when they shouldn't well if you buy an automobile you're not going to presume about the law because you know they'll get you they cost you so you're going to study the thing out and you're not going to presume anything you're gonna know with us, say, of the state of Washington, the state patrol, in regard to driving. <laughs> so, <clears throat> anyway. So if I do not have faith in what I'm doing, then what I'm doing is sin to me, even though it may be right to do. Because I'm violating the number one principle that is to guide the man of God and that is his faith. <clears throat> now we're going to chapter 15 in regard to helping others. Uh, so uh, don't judge, don't tempt, and be a help to others. Oh, he talks about in fifteen one through seven uh, imitate imitating Jesus, and it's interesting the things that's presented here in in thought. Uh, in imitating Jesus, there is an obligation, an edification, an imitation. There's a confirmation, inspiration. Supplication and application uh, in imitating Jesus. I put them on the board so you got a listing of them over there. (laughs) These are presented in the first seven verses of chapter 15. We're going to plow through this and look at it, but nevertheless, there is what we're looking at. He says, It says, now, we that are strong ought. Now, let's stop and look at that word ought. It's interesting. We that are strong ought. The word ought came into the English language from two words. And those two words was O2. Out of this word, ought. Owe to. So it looks like I owe somebody something. It's what you owe to a fella. You ought. You. Uh, your oughts toward a fella is what you owe to him. Uh, ought is the word debt. You're indebted to him. It's a word that expresses debt. The stronger brother doesn't pay his debts unless he does what? Unless he bears the infirmity of the weaker brother. And then he's paid his debt. That's what he ought to do. He owes this uh, to a weaker brother. Uh, do you know what makes You feel better than anything in the world. It's giving, isn't it? Uh, The best thing is giving. Uh, Getting makes you real happy, but it's more blessed to give than to receive, the Lord said. That's one of the most hard passages to believe. Matter of fact, it's probably one of the most unbelievable passages in the Bible. But those that are parents knows that it's true, or they, have, uh, 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 or they that have ever loved anybody knows it's true. The stronger brother ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. There's the obligation. He's obligated to do that. It's not an option. He's obligated. He owes a weaker brother. He started out with that word. Now, we that are strong ought, O-U-T-H-T. We owe, we're in debt to that weaker brother. And so, uh, there's the obligation that we're under if we follow Jesus. Now, if we don't follow Jesus, we'll just forget it. (laughs) Don't even need to study it anymore. But if you're going to follow the Lord, and you better, or you ain't going to go nowhere uh, except down, Uh, then you see it as an obligation. And then edification is found in verse 2, where he says, Let each one of us please his neighbor for that which is good unto edifying. And then there's uh, imitation. That's found in verse 3. It says, For Christ also pleased not himself, but as it is written... And so there's uh, imitation. And then there's confirmation is found in the latter part of verse 3. In the quotation of scripture. It's confirmed by the Old Testament scriptures. And then inspiration is found in the Old Testament scriptures that he quotes. There in verse 4 and 5. Yeah, I put that on the board up there, didn't I? And then supplication is found in the fact that we, with one... Mouth and one accord will glorify God. And then finally, application is found there in verse 7 where we are applying that in receiving one another, even as Christ received us. Now this gets a little delicate here. If I just remember how I was when Jesus first received me, I probably won't find it too difficult to receive any brother now keep that in mind look back when you was converted what kind of a fellow was you what kind of a woman was you well you have to admit that you was ignorant of a lot of things did God, did Jesus receive you well then you copy him you imitate him and receive a brother a weaker brother What kind of person were you when Jesus received you? Was you a holy fellow, really doing good, really pleasing to God, and God looking down and saying, that person is so good, I believe I'll choose him. I believe I'll accept him. And you know, in our arrogance and our estimation of ourselves, sometimes we see ourselves as some kind of a blessing to God rather than him being a blessing to us. We do. We even sing about it. I love me, I wish you land a and a paper, I bet my blood. Well, whatever the song says. <laughs> well, you and I know better than that, don't we? Now, that's the way that we ought to receive each other then, as Christ received us. He was glad to receive us, wasn't he? When we made that confession that I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and was willing to be baptized as he instructed us for the remission of sins, there was a rejoicing in heaven with the angels and all the hosts up there, wasn't there? That's what the Bible teaches in many places in many ways. Now beginning in verse 8 through 13. He applies this both to Jews and Gentiles. Applies what? Applies these seven things that following the Lord requires. If you're going to follow Jesus, here's what you need to do. Recognize those seven things that he just mentioned in verse 1 through 7. Now in verse 8 through 13, he applies that both to Jews and the Gentiles, showing that he's not here discussing a Jewish or a Gentile problem. He's not discussing problems now, he's discussing love for a weaker brother. He says, verse 8 For I say that Christ hath been made a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Now, the circumcision is a Jew, isn't it? We understand that. That he might confirm the promises given to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now, what did the Old Testament have to say about God's mercy? Well, just one passage, I guess. Genesis 12 and verse 3. What did God tell Abraham? In thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Did that include the Gentiles? All took them in, didn't it? So the promise from the very beginning was that the Gentiles received this hope in Christ as well as the Jews. So Jesus was made a minister of the circumcision to confirm the promises and enable the Gentiles to glorify God because of their salvation. Then he quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah and Deuteronomy. Those three books, Psalms, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy. And first, the Psalms. And this is also found in 2 Samuel, because it's the same words. But in Psalms 18 and verse 49, he says, Therefore will I give praise unto unto thee among the Gentiles. Oh, there's a promise of hope for the Gentiles in Christ, isn't it? But now this thing had to be played out. Salvation came first to the Jews, didn't it? It was preached in Jerusalem like it was prophesied. Uh, The truth came forth from Jerusalem. The Spirit began to be poured out upon all flesh, beginning at Jerusalem. But that Spirit was for just the Jew? no read uh, Joel 2 verse 28 through 30 sometime and there the promise was that in the latter days God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh not just some not just the Jews but on all flesh and of course that didn't take place historically until Acts the 10th chapter in the case of Cornelius that I talked about earlier all right so <laughs> Psalms eighteen forty nine says, Therefore will I praise, give praise unto thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. Verse 10. Uh, again he says, and this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice ye nations, the Gentiles with his people. And then from the Psalms, 17, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the people praise Him. And then Isaiah 11, verse 10, And again Isaiah said, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he that ariseth to rule over the Gentiles. On him shall the Gentiles hope. So they have hope in Christ, don't they? Because the root of Jesse was who? The Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. Now I think he quoted all the scriptures for, for the Jews' benefit. I believe that's who he uh, spoke to here. The Gentiles are glorifying God, and they don't need any proof that they can do it because that's what they're doing. Uh, they have accepted the gospel preached by Paul very readily, very fully. And so they really don't need the scripture quote, but the Jews do, the Jews do, because they've been raised uh, all their life believing the Gentiles to be unclean. Incidentally, let me inject something here that has nothing to do with our study. Have you ever wondered why the genealogies in the Bible Now the genealogy doesn't deal with everybody. It only deals with the seed lineage of Christ. Basically. You see, they kept pretty articulate records over who was born to who. Why? Because at Mount Sinai, one of the regulations was that they were to never intermarry with the other nations. If they did, they lost their standing with God. They were no longer God's people. The ones that done that. That's why the Samaritans were called Samaritans. They were half-breeds. When Assyria took uh, the ten tribes captive in 721 BC and hauled them off to Assyria, the Assyrians, uh, according to history, had a practice. Of keeping insurrection down amongst them by causing the nations that they captured to intermarry with the other nations that they had already captured, and consequently, bloodlines running all the different nations of people. And so that's why they were called Samaritans, they were half-breeds, and they were not God's people under the covenant uh, uh, from Sinai. Uh, you remember how that, when the children of Israel left seventy years of captivity, uh, the punishment God placed on them, the, the the tribe of Judah, and they came back to, at the orders of God to rebuild the temple, in King Cyrus' the day. Uh, you remember how they had to search the records, the genealogical records, so that they could prove that they weren't half-breeds. Only Jews, true Jews, was able to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Read Ezra and Nehemiah and you can find all about it. And so when they when the select group got ready to go back, and with the blessing of King Cyrus, they went back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Who did they run into back there? There's the Samaritans. Oh, we're so glad you come back. Now, let us help you build the house of God. And what did God's leaders have to tell those Jews? You have no part nor lot in this. You're not God's people. That's what we have to tell the the denominational world. Every year, the Catholic Church up here Wants to hold this power over all the churches. They want the community to know that uh, the Baptist, the Methodist, the Presbyterian, and all the rest of them uh, have Pope's blessing. And so, because of that, every year they give an invitation to all the preachers of all the churches around in this community together for a day of worship. And they promise the preacher that he can present a song and a prayer and a scripture that's unique to him. But it's all a show of who is in charge. That's all it is. They've got to be Democrats. That's just all he to do it. <laughs> but that's what they do. And that's why uh, for years I've had to turn them down. I've had to tell them. You have no part in a lot in building the house of God because you don't even preach the church about the entrance into the kingdom, which is by birth in the baptistry. You're not the church of God. You're not the church that God ordained to his son. You have to tell them that. But the Gentiles <coughs> have been looked upon as being unclean. And they were under the law to the Jew. And uh, remember those Samaritans, because of their intermarrying after they was taken captive in 721 B.C., uh, they become half-breeds. <coughs> you remember when Jesus met the woman the Samaritan woman at the well the apostles never said anything but it says that they thought to themselves why is he talking to a woman of Samaria because that was just not heard of they didn't like the Samaritans they were were half-breeds and of course you remember the discussion that went on between Jesus and that woman Uh, so here Paul is showing that uh, the Jew needs to recognize what the Old Testament prophesied about that hope through Christ was to come to the Gentiles and he quotes a bunch of scripture there to show it Uh, and so he quotes the scriptures uh, well here four of them To let them know that God had all along planned, even from the time that he uh, repeated the law in the book of Deuteronomy, God had all along planned that the Gentiles and the nations would praise him. That's exactly what we read in those four verses. And so he concludes, verse 13, he says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace in believing that ye may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now back up here earlier, he called God in verse 5, the God of patience and of comfort. Now he calls him the God of hope. And so God, according to Paul's message here, is a God of patience, comfort, and hope. And so you have a pretty good threefold description of God in this passage, paragraph. But he wants them, as he concludes his exhortation to them, he wants them to understand his desire in writing the entire epistle was to give them all joy and peace in believing and that they might have a abounding hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he wanted them to have joy, peace, and hope as they believed. And he thought, of course, that the Spirit would enable them to have that. Uh, After all, in Ephesians 3, verse 16, Paul prayed that they might be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in the inner, inward man. And that's the same emphasis we have here uh, in our study. That's the strongest... uh, That's the strengthening of the Christian by the Spirit of God. (coughs) Now this brings us to uh, chapter 15. Now I don't expect it... All of us are going to come out understanding what we're studying altogether. But that's not the important thing because maturity is level upon level as we study the Word of God. And next year when you read it, it'll have more meaning to you than it does now because you will have hopefully grown uh, to an altitude of where you can understand a little deeper into things that's been mysteries to you. So don't give up just because you don't understand everything just as clear as you would like to. Just rejoice in what you can understand at the moment and wait for another day, another study, another time. All right, now in chapter 15, uh, he begins talking about helping others. Don't judge them, chapter 14, uh, the finish of chapter 14, don't tempt them, and now help them, help others. And in this help, uh, he's gonna present, as you see on the board over there, the interest of the worker, the mind of the worker, the attitude of the worker. It's all laying right there on the board, I believe. Did anybody see it? Where did I write it? Well, maybe I didn't. It's on the bottom there, interest, in mind, the and bottom. attitude. You see it? Yep. chapter 15, one through 12, the interest, the mind, and the attitude. All right, so the Christian as a worker, that'll be the title of what we're going to study now. Uh, We're looking here at the Christian as a worker because I believe that's what chapter 15 emphasizes, uh, that uh, characteristic of the Christian. What's characteristic of them? Well, here they are. First of all, he talks about the interest of the worker, the thing in which he is interested. We find out in chapter 15, 1 through 4, that he's interested in the weaker brother. That's He's interested in helping. Uh, We've already studied that, so we just move on. And then he talked about the mind of the worker, not only his interest, but the mind of the worker, in verse 5 and 6. And the mind of the worker there is the same mind. In other words, it's a united mind with all of his other brethren. They're like-minded. Can they be like-minded? Well, on Wednesday night, we're studying 1 Corinthians, aren't we? What did Paul say to those who were uh, dividing the church? In verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1.10. He admonishes them that they be of the same mind. Is it possible? Paul thought it was. He's writing by inspiration of God. Be of the same mind, same judgment. You got it there, son. Read it. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. All right, that's possible, isn't it? The man of God. Well, why is there a division between the Baptist, the Methodist, Presbyterian, and us? We're not of the same mindset. But they would like to advocate that, wouldn't they? And that's what the Catholic Church is doing. Oh, we're all going to be saved. You know, it's just... God is such a wonderful God, He's going to save everybody. He's going to save the homosexual. Even though He continues in homosexuality, He's going to save everybody. Nobody's going to be lost. Why? God don't have a hell for nobody. He wouldn't allow that. He can't be a God of love and do that. That's their argument. But yet, when you, if you agree with them, then all of a sudden they start drawing lines. Well, in order to be saved, you've got to follow this Catholic dogma or this Baptist doctrine. So you see, they really don't believe what they advocate, do they? Not at all. But Paul talks here about them being of the same mind and the same judgment. And so uh, the mind of the worker in verse 5 and 6 Uh of the same mind. In other words, it's a united mind with all of his other brethren. And then he talks about the attitude of the worker in verse 7 through 12. That attitude is to receive each other even as Christ had received him. That's his attitude. In other words, again, I receive a brother recognizing that Christ received me in my ignorance, uh, in my. Uh, with all of my problems and hang-ups, And he worked with me and he brought me thus far. And don't we sing a song like that? Hither by thy help I've come. I don't know what the song is, but. The fount of every blessing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, here I raise my Ebenezer, a monument to God in that he's brought us thus far in our maturity. And so his interest is that attitude. His mind is to be one-minded with others. His attitude is to receive others even as Jesus received him. And then in verse 13 through 16, he talks about the equipment of the worker. Now, he's uh, he, t- he started out talking about a Christian as a worker, and now he's going to fill in here talking about the equipment that God has equipped us with to be that worker that he want, He desires. Starting in verse uh, 13. Uh, let's read these verses. Starting in verse 13. Uh, gives a general statement about his equipment by talking about uh, the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brothers, that ye yourselves are full of goodness. And here's his equipment, you see, full of goodness. There's equipment number one. And that's on the board there for your, uh, for you to get down in your study. Uh, full of goodness is uh, equipment number one. Filled with all knowledge, he says. Now there's equipment number two. All uh, able also to admonish, and there's equipment number three to admonish one another. Uh, verse fifteen. But I write the more boldly unto you in some measure as putting you again in remembrance because of the grace that was given me of God, that I should be a minister of Christ Jesus unto the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be made acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so they, as he said, have this equipment from God that enables them to do the work of God. They have goodness, they have knowledge, and they have admonition, which are their tools for goodness and knowledge. And actually, because admonition is the results, goodness, knowledge, uh, is the equipment given by God. And the results is admonition. He also listed in verse 13, joy, peace, belief, and hope. So there's your equipment. Joy, peace, belief, hope, goodness, and knowledge. There's the equipment of the worker. All of that is uh, is any of that uh, in uh, attainment. No, not all of that is is uh, uh, an atonement. It is atonement, not attainment. It is because of the atoning power of God that we are equipped, therefore, for the service. And then he talks about the sufficiency of the worker. His sufficiency. Now, he's declared him to be a worker, starting in the 15th chapter. And uh, then he talks about the the equipment of the the worker. Uh, The goodness, uh, that equipment is is uh, goodness, knowledge, and uh, the results is admonition. And then he talks about the sufficiency of the worker and then the motive of the worker. I'm just trying to get you to follow along on the outline on the board. So here's the sufficiency of the worker in verse 17 through 21. He says, I have, therefore, my glory in Christ Jesus in things pertaining to God. Uh, For I will not dare to speak of anything save those which Christ wrought through me. Now, did Paul do anything? No, Christ did it through Paul. You see where he gives the credit to? He isn't like a lot of preachers that stands up and, and boasts about this coming from them. Paul acknowledged that this is the power of the Holy Spirit through the word, as it came from Jesus to the apostles. For the obedience of the Gentiles by the Word, by word and deed. Verse 19. Well, let's read verse 19 through 21. As he talks about our sufficiency. 19 through 21 through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the holy spirit of god so that from jerusalem and round about unto iconium i have fully preached the gospel of christ yea so have i strived to preach the gospel not where christ was named lest i should build upon another man's foundation but as it is written to whom it was not spoken of they shall see and they that have not heard shall understand and so he says he, uh, we are uh, sufficient for the task why? because Christ works through us and so the sufficiency of the worker is Christ working through them Now, I don't want to get carried away with this, but I do want to suggest it. Does God have to tell me what he's and his son, do they have to tell me what they're doing on the other side of the curtain on the stage of life? That's none of my business. But they're out there working continually, uh, millisecondly, if you will, for you and I. We don't have to know all that they do for us, do we? Now, we do know that there are scriptures that teach that uh, uh, they're there to answer our beckon and call if it's according to the will of God. And we do know that they will not allow us to be tempted above that we're able to bear, but will with the temptation give us a way of escape. And there are a lot of things that we know that God does for us Uh, behind the curtain of life and there's not some advertisement uh, that's going to come on your TV that tells you what God's doing. It's none of your business. He's got his work to do and we got ours. But he's desperately in love with humanity, his creation. And he's desperately trying to reach every single person. He's not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. And so... So, uh, so Paul acknowledges that uh, his glory is in Christ Jesus in things pertaining to God. Uh, and as he talks about the motive of the worker in verse 22 and 23... Uh, well back up to verse 21 again verse 19 to 21 we just read he's saying that our sufficiency for the task because Christ works through us so the sufficiency of the worker is Christ working through uh, through the believer now I don't know how he does his work but I do believe this I've stood in the pulpit in the stress of preaching And there's things come to me that I didn't really know that I I knew. Now, I'm not trying to say that God performs miracles. Don't get that idea at all. And like I said, how God works out there, I don't know. But you put yourself to the task of preaching the gospel to the lost with a love for the lost. And you see, if God doesn't come in and aid you and help you to sweep you off your feet... In your labor, there's things happen that you wonder about that you don't understand. That's what I'm telling you. I'm not trying to be Pentecostal or anything of that nature. I'm not trying to advocate that God for a moment inspires individuals. But there are things that come to your mind. Of course, we know the mechanics of the mind can do that. Mechanically, can it? It doesn't need a miracle. When you've studied something, you've laid it to your intellect. And when pressure gets great, what it comes forth, doesn't it? I've been on uh, a lot of jobs working with a fitter. It's ungodly. And we'd be discussing the scriptures, and I don't have any intent of getting anywhere with him. I just quote scriptures, you know, uh, out of the Bible, I don't say where they're from or nothing. And I don't know how many times I've saw fitters that I talked to like that stop and think a minute. Yeah, I remember reading that. <laughs> you see the power of the human mind? You know things that you don't really know that you know. So don't get the idea I'm trying to say that God inspires anybody today. Uh, we get our inspiration how? By perspiration. The apostles got their inspiration by miraculous means. The Lord told them in John 10, verse 19 and 20, take no thought what you should say or what you shall speak, for it will be given you in that very hour. And then in verse 20, he says, for it's not you that speaks, but the spirit of my father, which is in you. So they were miraculously inspired and I'm inspired by perspiration. I have to study that's what Paul told Timothy, wasn't it? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, handling the right, the word of truth. Now, I see that this study of the latter part of Romans is very vital today because how many times has the Church of Christ's leadership, I'm talking about the preachers, the elders, and the leaders, how many times have they challenged you to recognize that you're a worker, a workman, that you're a soldier—that's to put on armament and fight the good fight of faith. They don't—they don't go into that, do they? I've lived a whole life going to the Church of Christ. I've never heard things like that. All once in a while they touch on it a little bit, but they've never brought out the emphasis that you and I, as we follow Jesus, we're workers. We have a job to do down here. We're not islands unto ourselves. I'm to look on my weaker brother and love him and try to help him and certainly not hinder him uh, by tempting him or judging him but to help him. I'm to love the lost as Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. All right, then last of all, number six. He talks about the motive of the worker. The sufficiency of the worker now, it's the motive of the worker. In verse 22 and 23, he talks about that by talking about his motives. Paul uses himself as an example uh, for the equipment, the sufficiency, and the motive of the Christian worker. I'm persuaded that Paul had something in, in mind at the end of these letters other than simply greeting folks. I believe the Spirit had something in mind more than just in having these things uh, sustained. And I believe you can look into the heart of Paul more in the conclusion of his letters than anywhere else because there's where he drops off the doctrinal part and gets into the human part as he expresses his love for certain brethren and his concern for their growth and development in the close of his letters. And so you can see his motive. And so let's uh, notice here nine motives. First, the Christian's motive is uh, difficulties. Verse 22. He says, uh, Wherefore also I was hindered these many times from coming to you, So sufficiency does not do away with difficulty. Difficulty is still there, isn't it? And so there's the Christian in difficulty. You're gonna have difficulty. Certainly you are. You can't get away from it. Uh, And God doesn't expect you to. Sometimes he's hindered in spite of his interest, his mind, his attitude, his equipment, and sufficiency. Sometimes he's hindered in that situation. Well, our time is well up. So let's begin with verse 23. Next week, where he talks about the Christian in regard to service. Now he's talked about the Christian and his motives and difficulties. We have difficulties. That don't slow us down, does it? We face those difficulties because we know that if it reaches a certain point, the Lord steps in and does something about it, doesn't he? Uh, So we begin with verse 23 uh, next week. And this is the 14th. for this evening.